You're listening to the Jewish Living Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Mech. Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our first class in what will hopefully be a series on Jewish living. Um, the idea and goal of this class is going to be what I call practical halacha. It's going to be more of a class on law, on Jewish law, on how to live our lives uh, in accordance with halacha and Jewish law. Um, and I, I guess maybe just to preface, you know, what that is and what that looks like, I'm always reminded of a metaphor that I once heard from Rabbi Goldman, which, of course, he says much quicker, I have to embellish, so I apologize, is he says, he, he once told over a metaphor, a story, he says, imagine your wife sends you shopping, and she sends you to Smith's, and she says, get the zesty garlic dill, no, zesty garlic spear pickles. Zesty garlic, you know, spears. You know what I'm talking about? Z- Perfect. So you go to Smith's, I go to Smith's, and I have it on my shopping list, and you get to the pickle aisle. There are 80 varieties of pickles. And I'm look, looking at the shopping list, and it says, zesty garlic spear pickles. And I say, who cares? A pickle is a pickle is a pickle. This pickle, that pickle, spears, holes, circles, dill, garlic, zesty. Who cares? It's, it's stupid. It's irrelevant. And I come home with the dill gherkin pickles. And I say, here, honey, here's your pickles. And she says, these aren't zesty garlic spears. And I say, who cares? A pickle is a pickle. What's the difference? So now we all can chuckle at that, and we get it. That's not going to be great for a productive, happy marriage. And the question is, is why not? And the answer is, and this is an important idea in relationships, is that when you're in a relationship, when you're in any meaningful relationship, hey, Tal, welcome. If you're in any meaningful relationship, what's important to the other person in that relationship ought to be important to you, but here's the the key, even if you don't understand why. I don't see the difference between the small pickles and the big pickles and the garlic and the dill, but obviously it's meaningful to my wife. I could do one of two things. I could roll my eyes and say, because I don't get it or I don't understand it, who cares? It's just a stupid little detail. That's not a good success. Here's my free marriage counseling, that's not a very productive way to be happily married or to be in any relationship. The option number two is to say, if it's meaningful to her, it's meaningful to me, even in the context that I don't fully get it. The details, I don't appreciate why the nuance of the details matter, but in a healthy relationship, we care about the other person and we care about the details even when the details don't matter. That's a beautiful metaphor, I believe, for Jewish law and halacha. You've probably bumped into the fact that in Jewish law, in halacha, there is a lot of detail and there's a lot of minutia. Now, typically Judaism breaks, we, we break our mitzvahs down into three categories. There are the 
mishpatim, laws of interpersonal, you know, laws. Typically, we think of tort law, civil law, a lot of the laws of benadam lechavera, between man and your friend, kindness, charity, not causing any harm. We get those. And we can even understand a lot of the details associated with that. When we get to the next category, there's another category of mitzvah called edos. Literally means a testimony. I typically like to think of them as ritual law, ritual mitzvah. So I would think of like Shabbos as an example. I may not have come up with the idea of celebrating Shabbos on my own, but now that God says, here there's a thing called Shabbos, I get it. It's not like, it doesn't make any sense. I get it. I may not have intuitively figured it out on my own. And then there's a third, you know, Passover would be a good example. I may not have on my own said, hey, Passover's, a, a, you know, and all the rituals associated, and the matzah and the marah. I may not have come up with it on my own, but now that the Torah says it exists, I get it. We get it why we eat matzah. We get why we eat marah. These things make sense. And then there's a third category of mitzvahs called chukim. I loosely translate it as statutes. These are laws that we don't necessarily understand. The pickles. It's important to understand that in Judaism, the details do matter. Judaism, just like in any relationship, when we talk where one of the defining elements of Judaism, Judaism is not so much a religion. Obviously, it is a religion. But we usually, we need to think about our Judaism. We need to think about it is in the paradigm of a relationship. We're in a relationship with God. Now, God doesn't need us. That's, that's where it's going to break down. It's a metaphoric relationship. God doesn't need us. It's not really two ways in the sense that my wife needs me, I need her, we're a team. We're not really in that kind of team type of relationship. But that is how God set it up. God doesn't need us to do anything. God is infinite, and by definition, someone who's infinite doesn't need us to do anything. But God set up the world and set up the system of Judaism that we interact with God as if we were in a relationship. So there are a lot of things that we do in Judaism that are very rich, that are very meaningful, and the details make a lot of sense. At some point in Judaism, you're going to bump into some details that I don't fully get. We always have to go back to that metaphor. We always have to go back to that, gar- that pickle metaphor. That we're going to do it, you know, even if it doesn't fully make a ton of sense. So this whole class is going to presuppose two things. It's going to presuppose God is there. God created the heaven and the earth, and God is involved in the history and affairs of mankind, and God cares about what we do. It's going to presuppose that if we're not so comfortable with that, that's for a different class. It's going to also presuppose that the system of the Torah is true. We're going to presuppose that. That the system of the Torah, number one, that the Torah is divine, and number two, the system of halacha is indeed correct. So we're not going to spend a ton of time like questioning, how do we know, why is it? Those are good questions, and we have plenty of classes to tackle those issues, and they are important. That's not what this class is going to be about. This class is going to be more focused on what are some of those details? We're going to try to balance, because the details, you spend time going through the details of Judaism, you could spend several lifetimes just scratching the surface. And that could lead to a certain paralysis of practice. Uh, there's too much, let me just give up. And the answer is obviously going to be, is we go kind of in layers. Is first we get a, you know, kind of one round on how to live a practical Jewish life, and then we keep as we 
keep on going and keep on learning and keep on growing, we learn more and more and more. Does that make sense? Before we go on, thoughts, questions? Joel has a question. Yeah, I don't know if you want Okay, so Joel is asking, does, you know, this third category of mitzvahs, chukim, statutes, is it the type of thing that God gave it to us 3,300 and whatever, 35 years ago, it didn't make sense now, but now over time we make, you know, now we understand it. Now with modern tech, so the answer is yes and no. The answer is yes and no, this is a very important idea. Our sages have always pulled out from all of the mitzvahs, even the mitzvahs that are chukim, excuse me, these statutory mitzvahs, they've always pulled out what are called tameha mitzvah. People call it, translate tameha mitzvah as reasons for the mitzvahs. That's not a very, it might be an accurate translation, but that's not a very good interpretation of when our sages uses the idea of tameha mitzvah. A better way of understanding it is lessons from the mitzvah. Meaning there are on all of the mitzvahs, and this isn't, not so much history we've developed over time, all the way going back to Moses at Sinai and in, in the Gemara and the Talmud and, and Rishonim and, and even earlier, Chazal, our sages have always pulled out lessons that we extrapolate and things that we can pull out from some of these harder to understand mitzvahs. So they're not totally just like, you know, no point to them. But, and here's an important point, it's not that the mitzvahs are illogical. These third category. They just don't necessarily follow a rationale that we can understand. A better way of looking at it, you know, we talk about relationships, and our relationship with God is multifaceted. We sometimes talk about God as being our benevolent Father in Heaven. Oftentimes, as a matter of fact, the prayer that we recite in the High Holidays and other important times is the prayer of Avinu Malkenu, our Father, Malkenu, our King. So we have that relationship with God as both our father, but as well as Malkenu, as, as our king. I'm going to give you a, ma- a metaphor, a good, healthy metaphor. You're a soldier in the war. Your name is Private Jones. And Colonel Smith tells Private Jones, your job is to protect Hill 141. Protect Hill 141. And... Private Jones says to Colonel Smith, 141? It's just, why kill 141? What's the difference between Hill 141 and 140? I think we should protect Hill 140. Or he says, the whole idea of protecting these hills is a bad idea. We should join the Navy. That's what we need. So we tell Private Jones, that's great. Those are good questions. But if, like, in a different context, that's a fair question. But in real life, you're a private. Your job, if your superior says, you, you got, you know, protect Hill 141, you protect Hill 141. And if you don't, we're going to court-martial you and put you in the brig. And not to be super harsh, because not, that, that's not typically how we view our relationship with God is this, like, dictatorial, you know. But to some degree, ultimately, we definitely view our relationship with God as a relationship as we're avadim, as we're servants to God, filling the Ratzon Hashem, God's will. Again, not that God needs us, but that's how sometimes the, the metaphor of the relationship that we have with God is protect Hill 141, even though I don't necessarily understand why. But to jolt to your point, 
our sages have said there are things we can learn and lessons perhaps that we can pull out from protecting Hill 141, but it shouldn't, and this is the critical piece, those reasons and lessons will never govern the halacha. They're never going to explain particularly the nuance of the details. Why the north side of 141 and not the south side? You're never going to be able to understand that. That we're just going to, at a certain point, we say, because this is the mandate of God. And that's it. Does that make sense? And that's the important thing. So that's our basic introduction and overview to halacha in general. And halacha is a very important part of Judaism. It's a very important part. If it's our only part, that's also going to be problematic. But it should be a part of our Judaism, is understanding the do's, the don'ts, the what's, and the what-nots. Terrific. I wanted for the next couple of weeks, sort of like, and halacha is endless, and you can spend, you can spend forever studying halacha. So what I wanted to do was sort of like pick units that might take us, you know, several weeks, if not probably several months at a time, uh, but sort of to go topically. And what I wanted to do, what I thought would be a very good place to start, would be the laws of brachas. The laws of brachas. In actually, in last week's parsha, we read a. Um, there's a commandment that a Moabite and an Ammonite, the Moabites and the Ammonites, these were nations back in biblical times. They um, they weren't allowed to convert into Judaism. Not allowed to accept converts from those two nations. Fast forward, what happened to those two nations? The end of the first temple era, all the nations got scattered, so they don't really exist anymore. But back during biblical times, the first temple era, if someone from the nation, particularly men, women would be accepted, most famously, Rus, if you recall. But the Moabite and Ammonite men were not welcome, could not convert into Judaism. Why not? In Judaism, we accept all. The problem, why don't we accept them? Well, the verse says, When the Jews were in the desert, traveling through on their 40-year journey to Israel, they passed through Moabite and Ammonite regions. And the Moabite and Ammonites, I just like saying that, I apologize. It's just fun to say. They didn't come to offer food, bread, water to the Jewish people as they were traversing the land. So therefore, we don't accept them into the nation of God as converts. Seems pretty harsh, right? Medrash, I believe it's the Medrash, explains a little deeper. It says, where did these nations of Ammon and Moab, where did they, what was their origin story? And the Medrash says, if you recall, anyone know where did the nations of Ammon and Moab start? There you go, very good. Tal's paying attention. Tal gets five points. Is if you recall, Ammon and Moab or children of Lot, complicated relationship, an incestual relationship, whole for a different story. But Lot has two children, who are also his grandchildren, hence the incest. He has two children named Ammon and Moab. Ammon and Moab, welcome. Ammon and Moab. And these two children are children of Lot. Who was Lot? Lot was Avraham's nephew, as well as brother-in-law. And Avram took great care of Lot. Lot was in trouble. If you recall the story in the, in the Chumash, Lot finds himself in trouble on several occasions, and Avram saves the day. And the Medrash says, 
How could it be that here you have Avram of Inu, Abraham, takes care of, um, of Lot. And now your Lot, your descendants, the nations of Ammon and Moab, when the Jews are in times of trouble, traveling through the desert, and you don't go and offer them water and bread? It's a lack of gratitude. It's ungrateful. Where were, this is the same Lot who Avraham, who's the progenitor of, of the Jewish people, he took care of them. How could they not? It's a lack of gratitude. Now, that's great. Two questions. Number one, that was 400 years earlier. And number two, okay, it's just a lack of gratitude. They're not appreciative. What's the big deal? Here's a question. It's an interesting question. How do you say Jew in Hebrew? Ivri. Ivri means a Hebrew. But how do you say, what, is the word, how do I, what does the word Jew mean? We're Jewish. I'm Jewish. What does that word mean? Okay, very good. Yehudi. Yehudi is how you say Jewish in Hebrew. Is that confusing? How do you say Jewish in Hebrew? Jewish in Hebrew, the actual in Hebrew, it's pronounced, the J turns into a Y sound. It's Yehudi. Yehudi, what does Yehudi mean? It comes from Yehuda. Who is Yehuda? One of the 12 tribes, one of the 12 children of Jacob, 13 children of Jacob, one of the 12 tribes. Okay? Terrific. So why are we all called there? Jacob had, there were 12 tribes. Why Yehuda? We know at the end of the Second Temple Era, if you're, if you're, excuse me, the First Temple Era, if you recall your Jewish history, the 10 tribes, Northern Kingdom, are kind, kind of driven away. The overwhelming majority of them just kind of cease to exist. They get swallowed up by the rest of mankind. The rest, there are a trickle from every one of the tribes that make their way into the Southern Kingdom. The Southern Kingdom was primarily of what tribe? Judah. So we even find as late, as early or late, whatever, as the Purim story, which is after the first temple is destroyed, we find by the Purim story, the, one, of, one of the heroes is the great Mordechai. He's identified as coming from the tribe of Benjamin. Yet the, 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 the prophet says he's called an Ish Yehudi, a Jewish man. To my knowledge, it's one of the first instances where you see this term Yehudi, which really means someone from the tribe of Judah, and they even ask, was he from the tribe of Judah or Benjamin? And the answer is he was really from the tribe of Benjamin, but they got swallowed up by the tribe of Judah, so it was really a little bit of both. Terrific. What does the word Yehuda? why was Judah called Yehuda? So we're all Yehudi, we're all Jewish. What does that name even mean? What does the name Yehuda, Judah, what does that name even mean? Bingo! Exactly. Leah gives birth to Judah, her fourth child, and what does she say? What does she proclaim? Hapam, this time, odas Hashem. I'm going to give gratitude and thanksgiving to God. So you want to know what it means to be Jewish? A defining characteristic, a defining midah, a defining attribute of being Jewish is being appreciative, having gratitude, being able to say thank you and recognizing all the good that's in our lives. That's what it means. That's what the literal, literal word Yehuda means to give gratitude and thanks. Jew means people of gratitude. And you want to know why? We say Ammon and Moab, you can't come into, the, into this nation because there's something wrong with your genetic makeup. How could it be if a nation who 
Avram Avinu, Abraham takes care of you guys, your great-great-grandfather, during his time of difficulty, during his time of crisis, and the progenitor of the Jewish people took care of your great-grandfather, and now here you go. Granted, it's 400 years later, but you're, show, you're not going to take care of them. You're not going to help them out when you're in a position to offer help. Aside from the fact that that's not nice, much worse than that, it shows a lack of gratitude and appreciation. Gratitude and appreciation is the defining part of Judaism. We say it three times a day in the Shemona Esrei, modim anach nulach. Thank you, God. We are appreciative of all the good in our lives. Literally, not figuratively, but literally the first thing we do when we wake up, you open your eyes, what should be the, literally the first thing that you say? Mode'ani lefanecha. That should be the first thing upon getting up. You should say, Mode'ani, I give gratitude and appreciation to you, God. All the good that you've done in my life. One of the most fundamental, there are many ways of expressing our gratitude to God. And one of the most fundamental ways of expressing our gratitude is whenever we experience anything in this world that we're going to derive benefit from, something good is about, we're about to experience something that we derive benefit from, excuse me, we should say, thank you, God, I appreciate it. And that's what really what the laws of brachas are all about. The laws of brachas are about showing our appreciation to God. I handed out these little handouts. If you're familiar, hopefully this is a nice review. If not, this is a good, you know, basic starting point. Our, for the next couple weeks, we're going to learn the laws of brachas. Here you have on this page, you should be familiar, there are six primary, there are some more minor ones, six primary brachas prayers, blessings, that we recite before eating any food. And essentially, when we eat food, we're saying thank you. We're saying thank you for the food that we're about to eat. These are the six brachas. We're going to spend time over the next couple of weeks. As you will see, the laws of brachas are actually, I don't want to freak anyone out or intimidate you, they're actually remarkably complicated. It's a problem is that they're very, very complicated and nuanced. Here's a guy, I see people getting a little nervous. Don't get nervous for two things. Number one, there's a challenge. The, the issue is, the problem is, I don't know about you guys, I eat every day, or I try to at least. <laughs> so it's, it's, not, it's okay, there's a lot of areas of Jewish law that are complicated. I just you know, try to avoid them. The laws of brachas are kind of hard to avoid. So I guess maybe you're grimacing even more, like, ah, here's the good news is 92% of the laws of brachas that you're going to deal with on a daily basis through the, with this course, please God, you can really get a, a good working knowledge. It's not hard. You just, it's one of those things, it just takes a little bit of time. And we're going to go through some of the most fundamental, I'm going to use the word practical laws that you need to know to live a Jewish life and be able to deal with these laws of brachas. It's a great story is um, I've, I know someone who got all inspired about brachas. I'm going to do the brachas. There are a lot of brachas. You say every time you eat something, you have to say a bracha. It could be a little overwhelming. And I guess the most important thing, walking away from this, this room, you know, from this room, this class, whoever's listening at home, is say a bracha. Say a thank you. It's our pleases and thank yous. That's literally what it is. It's literally our pleases and thank yous. 
And it's really an expression of our gratitude and appreciation to God. You know, thank you, God, for giving me what I'm about to eat. And I know someone who she was very inspired by this idea and notion of bracha, you know, saying these prayers. And she says, you know what? I'm going to make a commitment. My commitment is I love coffee. She said, I'm going to recite my first cup of coffee every day. The, it's, a, it's literally four seconds. It's a four-second commitment. Thank you, God, for my cup of coffee. And she made a commitment. I'm going to recite that bracha regularly on my first cup of coffee. I'm going to actually going to recite that bracha, and I'm going to actually be kind of alert when I recite that bracha. She said she was so inspired by that, it really began her journey and com- of commitment back to observance all through reciting brachas. I would also add also through coffee, yet again, demonstrating the magic that is coffee. But, but it's really a beautiful idea. Um, thoughts, questions before we go on? Am I making sense? A couple things about brachas in general, which I wanted to... Joel had a question. Yeah, is there, is there, I mean, can I just say, is, you know, thank you, God, for this word? Ah, okay. Or do I have to be... The answer is both, but you have to say the bracha. And here, here's why, and that's where I wanted to get to. Who, let, let's take a step back. So we're going to specifically talk for this the next couple weeks about the laws of brachas on food. Brachas, or if you think about it, if you really expand it, zoom out a little bit, they're a form of prayer, right? They're a form of prayer. We use the word colloquially as brachas, when we say, hey, did you make a bracha on this? What's the bracha on chocolate? Hey, did you say the bracha on that cup of coffee? A bracha, it comes from the word, bracha literally means blessing. It's a form of prayer. The truth of the matter is, there are many types of brachas. We, in this class, for the next little bit, when I say bracha, I t- almost always I'm going to mean these six brachas. The six brachas that we recite on food, which are the bracha on bread, the bracha on mizonos, on, on grain products, the bracha on wine, the bracha, I'm hoping I'm doing this right, the bracha on fruit, the bracha on vegetables, and the bracha on everything else. There are a couple other minor ones which maybe we'll get to later. But before we get here, I want to get to Joel's question, which is, why do we have to recite these brachas? Let me just say thank you. Please, thank you, God. There are a lot of prayers that we recite. There are a lot of prayers that we recite throughout the day. I always go, Rabbi, who wrote the sitter? Right? It's a great question. Who wrote the sitter? I once asked my brother-in-law, who's a very wise person, said, you know who wrote the sitter? The last guy who published it. Because, because literally, literally, prayers have been composed. It's not like one guy, Moses, came down from Sinai and he said, here is the sitter, the art scroll sitter, where Elenu's on page 480, please rise. You know, like, that's not what happened. Is the prayers have been layered throughout the generations. So as you have some prayers, which are very, very recent, composed within the last... 100 years. Some prayers were composed 500 years ago. Not all prayers are created equal. It's important to understand. Here's a key, though. I'll give you all an important trick. If you ever see a bracha, baruch, you're right, everyone familiar with the bracha, baruch atah Hashem, baruch atah Adonai, we typically, when we're in in non-bracha situations, we will say Hashem, we don't say God's name, baruch atah Hashem. If you ever see that anywhere, any prayer, whatever you're doing, if you ever encounter Baruch Hashem, again, assuming I'm 
presupposing. We're dealing with an orthodox, and that's all I'm going to go with. The art scroll sitter. You see Baruch Atah Hashem? Key. That should be a trigger and a light bulb. Baruch Atah Hashem is a bracha. Brachas, as a general rule, there are exceptions, but as a general rule, 90% of the time, but functionally we can view it as 100, a bracha were composed, the brachas were written and composed by the Anshei Knesset Hagedola, the men of the Great Assembly. And, we'll talk about what that means in a second, and they are going to be the most important prayers in all of the Jewish liturgy. Whenever you see that formula, Baruch HaTah Hashem, light bulb should be going off, that is the earliest form of, earliest form of prayer and the most important forms of prayer. Who were the Anshei Knesset Hagadola, the men of the Great Assembly? These were the group of prophets at the beginning of the Second Temple era. Some of them include famous football players like Mordechai that we just mentioned. Um, Daniel. There were prophets that were on the Anshei Knesset Hagadola. When they composed those prayers, recognize two things. Number one, there's a certain wisdom. When they composed the prayers, there's a certain like wisdom why this is you know, a, an appropriate way of saying please and thank you. Number two, it's more than just a certain wisdom. It's almost like computer programming. Like, you know what's like never a good question is like, if you ever look at computer code and you're like, I don't think that colon should go there. <laughs> like, that doesn't, work. that doesn't work. Like, the ignorant guy like me. Like, that colon, even though I don't understand it, it does a whole lot. And if you delete that colon, your, your whole program falls apart. Understand, brachas, baruch Hashem, whenever you see that, these were composed by the Anshei Knesset Zagadol, the men of the Great Assembly, of whom many were prophets. Which means it's not just, the art scroll always says, it's not just inspired poetry. It means there are many many, many deep layers behind the language as well. Don't mess with it. Don't mess with it. At the same time, you know, to the question, does that mean, therefore, we should just be mechanically reciting it? The answer is no. We should also be putting our mind into it so that when we say a bracha, when we say a prayer, we're thinking and we're cognizant over what we're saying. People ask me all the time, Rabbi, why? Let's talk about davening. Shmona Esrei, the most important part of the davening of the Jewish prayer, the Shmona Esrei. 18 prayers. Why do I need to say that? Let me just go and say, compose my own. We were just talking about that, right? Just compose my own, you know, thoughts and prayers. And the answer is, there is a place for that as well. That is very important. You should pray in your own words. You should, it's not either or. You should also follow the text that's been prescribed. For two reasons. The two re number one is I happen to find, like I meant, it's really those two reasons that I just described. There's a certain wisdom to it, to following a script. We were talking earlier, like imagine every day, three times a day, I have to compose a poem. That's really hard. <laughs> I'd rather just follow an organized outline. Most of the prayers in the Shemona Asrei, most of the prayers that we pray throughout the day and all the brachas, they, there's a certain wisdom to it. They're not like arbitrary. They make a lot of sense if we stop and just are conscious and have a certain like mindfulness of, of, of reciting them. We will, I find, I think people, if, how about this, I challenge you, be mindful of the brachas that you recite for a month, you will probably find there's a lot of meaning and depth to it. 
At the same time, yes, it can become mechanical, so you need to fight that. You can also put in your own words. There's nothing wrong. I would say it's both. But don't skip. If you see Baruch HaTo Hashem, don't skip that. That means it was authored by a prophet. Those prophets knew what they were doing. Does that make sense? They do. I just, I, what I did was, on this page, you see that hey? It, I, I, I didn't want, it actually originally had the name of God in there. That stands for Hashem or Adonai. Because I didn't want it, so that is the name of God. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, treat these, treat these pages with respect, but it's I did, the actual name of God in the Yod and the Hay and the I didn't want, it's, we don't like putting those on a piece of paper in case something happens to it, but it has the name of God in it. This is, you see, everyone see, it says Baruch Hashem. These are all prayers. Who composed these six prayers? Prophets. Again, not inspired poetry. This is real, the real thing. Again, zooming out just for a second. We, I mentioned there are a lot of brachas. There are different categories of brachas. I, in my mind, this isn't like I didn't come out of this at the Talmud. In my mind, I lump brachas into five categories. And it's helpful just to, to understand this for a second. I see five broad categories of brachas in general. The first category are what I would call birchos hatila. Prayers, uh, blessings of prayer. Classic example, shmona esrei. We recite these prayers on a regular routine and rhythm. Three times a day. Shachras, mincha, and mariv. Part of the daven, it's part of our davening liturgy. Berchos hatfila, routine prayer. Category number one, there's a time and place. Maybe we'll get to that next semester. But that's one group. But, but just so you know, whenever you're davening, you're davening shachris, you're davening min, you're davening some of the prayer. When you get to a part that says baruch Hashem, again, follow that rule. It's a very good rule. That is a more important part of the prayer. Does that make sense? It's a good key. Berchos hatfila, Blessings of prayers. That's category number one. Category number two is called berchos ha-mitzvahs. Brachas that we recite over mitzvahs. You put on your tefillin, you put on your tzitzis, you say a bracha. Candle lighting. Women, you light candles. You say a bracha before. Why? Really think about it. What's the mitzvah? The mitzvah is lighting the candles. The mitzvah is putting on the talis. The mitzvah is shaking the lulav. The mitzvah is hearing the sound of the shofar. Yet we precede all of these mitzvahs by reciting a bracha. Because our sages, these prophets, instituted that before certain mitzvahs, not all mitzvahs, as a matter of fact, if you want to get your PhD in rabbinics, not, I'm just joking, but one of the great essays that you know, commentaries always ask, why certain mitzvahs do we do we recite brachas on, and certain mitzvahs do we not? There are certain rules and patterns, but as a general rule, before certain mitzvahs, before we perform the mitzvah, we will say the bracha. So for example, washing our hands. Baruch HaTashem, Lekinu Malachom, Asher Kedishanu, Vanu Al Natilat Yadayim. Everyone familiar with that? Right, you've heard that before? Whenever you see a bracha that says, Asher Kedishanu, Vanu. That will always be a bracha on a mitzvah. Those words mean, blessed are you Hashem, that you sanctified us with your mitzvahs and you commanded us to do washing the hands, listening to the shofar, lighting the Shabbos candles. Those are brachas that, we, that our sages instituted before we recite a mitzvah. 
That's category number two. And that's a whole section where, again, different semester. A third category are what's called Birchas Haudave HaShavach, blessings of gratitude. These are when certain situations of good tidings, good things happen or inspiring things happen. There's a whole set of prayers. It's actually not too many sets of prayers. Are a couple of prayers that are designated and recited over good news. What's the most classic example? Shout it out loud. Anyone guess? Shahachianu. You ever heard of the bracha Shahachianu? We recite it seasonally. When there are holidays, we're thankful to God. You kept me alive for this moment. Eshahachianu can also be recited over good news. You buy a new car, you say Eshahachianu. You buy a new suit, assuming it's a nice suit. You can say Eshahachianu. You buy a new house, you say Eshahachianu. I'll get you guys new suits at the right time. I'll show you what a good suit looks like. Good news, you recite Eshahachianu. Sometimes, if that good news is shared together with other people, that bracha changes to hatov v'hametiv. It's more of a collect that God is good and good to others. These are brachas that we recite over good news, over good tidings. Certain brachas we recite over inspiration. You see a huge mountain. There's a bracha that's recited over that. You see lightning. You see thunder. Inspiring moments. These are called brachas haudava hashavach. If a person is saved from a, a life-threatening situation, it's a bracha called, anyone know? Very good. Berchas hagomel. Hagomel kotov. There's a special bracha that's recited. Thank you, God. I'm expressing my gratitude that you've given me life when maybe I didn't deserve it. Person is in a certain situation. Most commonly, people recite it when flying. I don't know why. We only do it, most people only do it when you fly across the Atlantic or the Pacific over an ocean. But it doesn't, really in halacha, it's anytime you should be on a plane, really you should make that, that bracha. Most don't. I don't know why. Don't ask me why. You should. But that's what most people do. Sfarded definitely do. But even Ramosha Feinstein would say you should. But not for now. That's a, step, a third category called berachas haudav hashavach. Should women recite that bracha? Yes, but we'll talk about that later. Not for now. That's a different, that's the third semester. Those are the brachas of haudav hashavach. There's a fourth category, which I don't know what it's called. I'm just going to call it miscellaneous. There are a bunch of brachas that I can't figure out what they are, so I'm going to stick them in that category. There is sort of like a miscellaneous fourth category. And then there's a fifth category. There's a fifth category of brachas called berchos hanehenen. Brachas that we recite when we receive benefit from this world, says the Talmud. Rabbi Levi Rami Ksiv, Rabbi Levi, so Rabbi living in, I'm assuming this is in the Amorak period, asks, there's a contradiction of verses. Ksiv, the verse says, to God is the entire earth, the, the earth that we are on. Who owns it? God. The Ksiv, yet there's another verse that says, Hashemayim l'shemayim l'ashem, the heavens are God's domain, but to the earth, earth, God gave to mankind. Asks Rabbi Levi, which one is it? Did God, is it that the earth belongs to God, or is it that God gave them the, the universe, the land, I mean, to mankind? Which one is it? He says, I'll answer you. It's not a question, it's not a contradiction. Kan kodem bracha? 
the verse that belongs to God, as it were, that's before you recite a bracha, kan la'achar bracha, becomes man after we recite the bracha. Talmud goes on to explain that when we recite a bracha, it gives us permission, as it were, to benefit from this world. The truth of the matter is, there are several types of birchos hananen. They're actually, if you might be familiar, some of the benefits that we derive pleasure from in this world that we recite brachas on are for fragrances. Havdalah. Is everyone familiar? You say the bracha of borei minei besamim. There's a special bracha on fragrances. The truth of the matter is, you might recall when we wake up part of the morning liturgy, there's a sequence of, I believe it's 15 brachas. Hashar nosam lasachvi vino lahavchen menyom laila. All of those brachas are actually brachas. Those are daily things that we get. Roka haaretz alamayim, that God expands the earth on the water, that nosan layoif koach, that God gives us strength. All of those brachas, according to most, are actually in that category. We're going to be spending this next, I guess we'll call it semester, focusing on a very specific area of Birchas Hananen, these brachas that we recite on things that we derive benefit from, and those are the brachas that we recite on food. Because there is going to be a lot, again, as I mentioned, these are very practical, and they're far more nuanced than some of these other categories that we've discussed. I just want to end with maybe a few more things, and we'll, we'll, we'll call it a night or a day. The, um, it's an amazing, maybe just to continue in the Gemara, the Talmud says, we'll conclude here, it says, Amar Bechanina Bar Papa, Great Rabbi Hanina Bar Papa said, Kol bracha. Anyone who derives benefit from this world without reciting the bracha first, ki as if you're stealing from God. Okay, I think we got that. You're not really stealing from God. God doesn't need our bracha. God doesn't need our prayer. But you owe it. It's a responsibility. So in a certain sense, by not fulfilling your duty, it's a form of theft. I get it. But it also says, he says, it says, if you stole from God, but it's also as if you stole from Knesset Yisrael. It says, if you stole it, you stole from the Jewish people. What did you steal from the Jewish people? So I didn't recite a bracha. I didn't steal, maybe I didn't do my own responsibility. How did I steal from you? And the answer, Rashi alludes to it, but Marsha says it more clearer. When we recite a bracha, we're expressing our gratitude and thanksgiving to God. When we do that, and I believe it is very deeply, Rashi says what we're in the Marsha says it more clearer. When we do that, God, as it were, is smiling in heaven. And he then bestows blessing in a virtuous cycle by continuing to shower blessing literally on the fruit of the world, on your paycheck. You know, I guess the modern day equivalent. And when we eat food from this world, and we don't express our gratitude to God, as it were, says Rashi, we're now, in a certain sense, cursing the food. So when you eat without making a bracha, it's not just that you're hurting your own spirituality, you're stealing from your neighbor, because had you recited that bracha, you would have brought more blessing down into this world. Brachas, the laws of brachas, are, again, don't get too freaked. They're not too nuanced. You just need to learn them, and you'll, you'll be fine. You can master them. I'll tell you a story. I am, and I believe this, I know the laws of brachas pretty decently. I've studied them over the years many times. You know, a lot of things. I'm always learning new stuff every day. But I owe a tremendous gratitude, speaking of gratitude, to my ninth grade rabbi. I was in, in yeshiva in ninth grade in high school. We went, we actually went through this book, 
there are two, these are the two best books on Hilchos Brachos. You don't need to get them. You might find them helpful. If you're going to get one, I suggest getting the aptly colloquially referred to as the grapefruit book. Can you guess why? Right? It's by Rabbi Bodner. It's a very good book. Their art scroll has another very good book. They're both very good. You don't need to get them for this class. I will, you know, we're going to go through it in less, in more practical detail. How about that? We're going to sift out what you need to know, what you don't need to know for further reading. But we went through this book in ninth grade. And again, my rabbi taught me on a very, you know, ninth grade level. And I got it. And that was enough for me to, like, you know, it stuck. You just get it. You learn it. He drilled us. He had some tests and stuff like that. And I learned Hilchos Brachos. I learned the laws of Brachos pretty decently. So, please, God, it's my hope and prayer. I'm going to encourage everyone to stick to this program, to stick to this group. And in a couple weeks' time, a couple months' time, we'll, you know, be experts in at least practical laws of Brachos. And then we'll continue. From strength to strength, we'll go on to the next unit. All right, thank you all for coming. We'll end here. You've been listening to the Jewish Living Podcast with Rabbi Nahal Math. Please do us a favor and like and share this podcast, ask a question, or leave a comment.